I don't need that quite yet. I think I'll stand. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like, I'm terrible with machines. Uh, yeah, it's just going to be terrible. All right, I think I'm okay. Uh, hi, so yeah, I'm Daniel Jose Ruiz. Uh, it's my first novel, and I guess the big thing is uh, I have to, I know it's weird that the kind of featured author is reading first, but I, uh, I really want to make it clear that Bruce Bauman uh, was my teacher at CalArts. He actually saw this book in its roughest form when it was uh, probably a good 60,000 words longer than it is now, and it's already a long book. <laughs> Um, yeah, writing is not the problem, it's editing. Uh, but Bruce was always super honest with me and very direct. And he gave me the best advice I think I've ever gotten, which was, you know, just tell the fucking story. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that is just a matter of respect um, that he should, as a senior writer and as my teacher, that he should oh, go. No. And mostly as my teacher, that he should go second in the position of honor for this time. Next time, we'll see. We'll fight over it. But, you know, this time. All right, so this novel is a kind of weird take on the coming-of-age tale in the sense that it's about a young man as he grows up. Um, you know, standard stuff. But really, it's complicated by the fact it tries to talk about a lot of things that don't get talked about when you're growing up. Things like violence, like the lessons of masculinity you get taught as a young man, the lessons of race you get taught as a man of color, and then how you're put into a box, and the moment you diverge from that box, people get upset, and people don't know how to deal with you, even people you thought were on your side. So, in this case, the section I'm going to read is from the third chapter where the protagonist, Miguel, uh, goes back to live in Los Angeles with his father and goes to a predominantly working class high school when he is used to living in a upper middle class place in Arizona and going to an almost all white high school. And so it's kind of his first experiences there and kind of dealing with this culture shock that, you know, he never thought he would really have to deal with. <clears throat> But Miguel's optimism, which was not in his nature to begin with, started to suffer the day that he went to buy his uniform and books. Jose dropped his son off, promising to return after his morning coffee and a quick business call on his new and coveted cell phone. He left Miguel with four crisp $100 bills and expected to see change. Miguel got out of the car, and something very odd hit him. Culture shock. Miguel was in his usual Arizona attire, jean shorts that went to just below his knee, a Rage Against the Machine t-shirt, and his Converse. He was instantly the oddity. Everyone around him seemed to wear clothing Miguel had never heard of, names like Fubu, Ben Davis, and Cortez. Miguel's hair was shaggy and unkempt, while most had theirs cut short or in braids. Miguel was one of the lightest people in the entire schoolyard. It seemed like everyone stared at him. Jose's bleak, uh, sleek black Mercedes, a recent acquisition, drawing more gazes until it disappeared. Then all eyes were on Miguel. He did his best not to let paranoia overtake him. He walked towards the small printout sign that said schedules. He stood in line, keeping his chest out and his chin up as his uncles constantly reinforced in him. He kept his hands in his pockets and idly thumbed his keys. He made no attempt to speak to anyone. No one made an attempt to speak to him. The tall black kid in front of him, his face already neatly outlined by a heavy goatee, turned. He looked Miguel up and down for a moment, then turned back around. Miguel whistled to himself a bit, but stopped as it seemed everyone had a problem with it. He made his way to the front of the line after 15 minutes of silence. He gave his name, and the same heavy-set Filipina handed him his schedule. He walked to the next station labeled books. Again, the same tall black kid was in front of him, occasionally shouting out a greeting to somebody as they passed by. Miguel was not sure how to react. What's up, my Negro? How you living? The kid called. Miguel was taken aback. 
He knew a few of the black kids from his high school in Arizona, but they never spoke that way, at least not in front of him. He wasn't privy to such things, and in Arizona, such things were to be hidden at all times. But here, here things were different. He stopped and listened to the conversations around him. Orale, pues. I mean, fuck that, man. Bitch is crazy, sabes? Nah, man, that shit ain't hood. Did you see that girl last night? Shh, asked for days. Miguel tried to identify who was saying what, but it was all a blur. No one seemed to care that the entire staff of the school seemed present. He saw kids slapboxing. He saw kids with their pants down to their mid-thighs. And he saw tattoos proudly displayed. Miguel just thanked God and whoever else was responsible. He had his braces off for some time. He eventually moved up to the desk, and a young black woman stood, half-smiling. Miguel gave her a schedule, and she yelled out in perfect Spanish to several of the people helping to gather books. She looked him up and down again, giving a bit of a wider smile before stacking his books in front of him. Miguel paid a small crowd gathering as he peeled off two of the bills in his hands and handed them over. He took his change and stuffed it into his pockets quickly. He moved on to the next station, his locker assignment. He opened his locker, stashed his books, and locked it tightly. He went to get his uniform. Sister Marlene was the one responsible for handing them out. She looked at Miguel, down at his shoes, and then back at his hair. She was the only one to speak to him the entire day. You may only wear khaki pants or black slacks. You must purchase leather dress shoes, as those are not allowed. You must cut your hair. At no point may any part of your hair touch your collar nor cover your eyes. You will have detention if at any time you are not in dress code. She said, already tired of growing through the usual lecture. Miguel noticed she did not say it to everybody. He also noticed that no students hung around her area of the school. There's a solid 20 feet buffer between her station and the herd of kids that wandered back and forth, joking and going over summer exploits. Sister Marlene put his clothes into a large trash bag and handed them to Miguel. He nodded and made his way to the parking lot, finding an empty spot next to the gate to wait for Jose. He watched the mass of kids, the oldest patrolling around, often stopping to harass anyone smaller. He noticed again that he was one of the lighter kids in the school, most at least three shades darker. He noticed that he heard more Spanish than he had ever heard in his life. He noticed that he was different in a whole new way. That scared him. Scared him quite a fucking bit. After ten minutes, a long and lonely ten minutes, Jose arrived. Miguel quickly threw his trash bag of uniforms into the back seat and told Jose not to bother breaking for anyone. Miguel watched as most of the crowd stopped to stare at the car as it slowly made its way out of the parking lot. Miguel let his breath out for the first time in what seemed like hours. He began to dread the first day. He tried to remind himself that he'd make it worse by expecting it to be worse. He tried to remind himself that he was Oreas and he wasn't afraid of anything while a dozen generations of brawlers and caballeros flowed in his DNA. He watched TV, hoping to learn some new slang. He shadow boxed and contemplated bringing a duct tape roll of quarters with him, just in case. But in the end, all he brought was himself, crammed into a black polo shirt that shrunk in the wash, highlighting his bulging stomach. His book bag, an old army medic bag from a lost relation, was full with two binders with freshly loaded lined paper, pencils, and pens. He was ready. He wasn't sure for what. He was just used to being told every day of his life that he was dangerous because he was a brown male. So all the others must be too. And he did not know what to do with it all. Every TV show, movie, and politically convenient speech shouted at him at once. Be afraid of them. Jose dropped him off 15 minutes before his first class, and Miguel tried not to show weakness. The school was a buzz, a healthy level of energy despite it was the first day of school. Everyone was in uniform, braids taken out and facial hair removed. Shirts were untucked, pants slung low, and some kids play fought while others just ran about punking their friends. Miguel made a beeline to his locker and took out his schedule. He had two classes before break. He loaded his book bag and slung it over his shoulder. He heard a few snickers as several other kids passed by, their eyes focusing on his bag. Everyone else had backpacks. 
Miguel sat and listened again. Several things became clear to him that made him much more uneasy. He figured that this was it. These some 400 students were the entire school. Miguel's high school in Tempe was well over 2,000. There was no crowd to hide in. Miguel would be noticed by sheer probability. He could not survive by trying to blend into a social clique as they were too small. He also noticed that most were public school kids from LA. They gloated about tagging, about fights with more than just fists, smoking pot, and getting laid. These were all things Miguel had never done. He felt like the fattest possible house cat that had delusions of grandeur surrounded by a few hundred hungry coyotes. <laughs> he was surrounded by quote-unquote urban youth, and even though he was supposedly one of those, he felt like a fraud. It was all different. In Exeter, everyone expected Miguel to cause trouble because that's what boys did. People accepted that. In Arizona, Miguel was the big fish in a small pond. Most people were too afraid to really fight back after his usual troublemaking. But this was L.A. He was not scary. He was not badass. Every movie and television show had told him that this was as bad as it possibly gets. He was surrounded by poor minorities, and there could be no greater danger. His first class was religion, too. This posed a problem for Miguel since he had never taken religion one. He was the, f he was the first in the classroom finding a quiet seat in the very back corner. The classroom filled to its capacity, 25 students pushed into the small room with a small chalkboard and an even smaller television. There was no homeroom at Venny. You went to your first class, whichever it was, and you sat there. Miguel watched his classmates file in and began to place them into appropriate characteristics, threats and possible threats. A middle-aged woman walked into the class, a lithe frame and ruby red lips. Miss Trescent surveyed her classroom and smiled, her teeth a smoker's yellow and straight as a fence. We have a new student, a Mr. Miguel Reyes, Miss Tresson announced, but everyone in the room was already well aware of the new face that did not belong. Please stand up and introduce yourself, Miguel. Um, hi, Miguel awkwardly said as he rose. He looked to Miss Tresson, who nodded for him to continue. I just moved here from Arizona, but um, I was born here in Los Angeles. Interesting, Miss Tresson humored him, already bored. Have you lived anywhere else? Uh, Central California and briefly in the 909, Miguel responded. Where the hell is that? A short and exceedingly round Filipino kid asked. Like Pomona, Laverne, Miguel responded. The class gave a slight murmur. She waved for Miguel to sit down and started to write on the blackboard in huge looping letters. <clears throat> Yo, man, why you leave AZ? The boy next to Miguel asked. He was, a bro he was broad, his eyes artificially lightened to an intense shade of amber. Uh, came to live with my pop, Miguel said, not really in the mood to go down that path. <laughs> yeah, my mom kicked me out once too. Must be a fucking mean fight if you ended up all the way out here. Another kid chimed in, a heavy-set boy with paler skin and jet black hair, neatly spiked. Miguel breathed a bit easier as the ice had been broken, and he had made the first contact. So far, no one seemed too intent on fucking with his day. It was high school. It was an all-boys school, and Miguel had a knack for finding trouble, so it was a minor miracle. But Miguel got cocky. He got dumb. I hated it there anyway. Too many white folks, Miguel started. He would have liked to believe that some part of him was screaming to shut the fuck up, that he, was in no way, uh, that he was in no way prepared to go down the path he was going down. But if that were true, Miguel didn't know it at that moment. He tried to find some camaraderie by doing what was typically done to him. It's nice to be around other Mexicans, you know? Fuck you, bitch, soy Guatemalan, the broad boy snapped. I'm Salvadorian, the heavyset boy added. Oh. Miguel just mumbled. It was one of the dumbest things he had ever said in his life. It was number one, except for the time they screamed out that the only reason that he wasn't a cop was because he could read. The two boys turned their backs to Miguel, talking in Spanish. Miguel knew enough to know they were talking about him, trying to figure out why he said such a horribly ignorant thing. Miss Tresent went out over the outline for the class, Miguel barely paying attention. It was the usual diatribe about studying, about making a commitment to education, about everyone being special and unique. 
It was the typical bullshit Miguel was fed since he started school. Everybody gets a trophy, everybody wins, so nobody loses. Miguel wondered what that mentality was going to do to him later in life when winners actually win and losers really do lose. After an hour of Miss Trescent reviewing what was covered in Religion 1, she split the class into small groups. Miguel had the fortune of being grouped in with the broad boy and the heavyset one, along with two others. They were to talk about the most important commandment and present arguments as to why it was so vital. It took the small group two minutes to come up with thou shalt not kill, and the conversation turned to the new kid. So this puta thinks everybody is Mexican, the broad boy said. Really? You think Mexicans are better, do you? One of the new kids asked, short and well-toned. No, Miguel responded curtly. If he were honest, he would have said that he really only knew Mexicans, and that he grew up in an environment that classified anyone not black, white, or Asian as Mexican. He did not know any better. But Miguel did not want to admit weakness in front of his new classes, and kept his responses cold and short. Hablas Espanol? The heavyset boy asked. Uh, sorta? Miguel responded, and from the look in the eyes of the others, knew that he had made a fatal mistake. What the fuck? This kid ain't even Mexican, just a white boy with a surfer's tan, the broad one laughed. He's the kid whose dad drives the Benz. He's the coconut, the heavyset boy added. Oh shit, you're that kid. Heard you paid for all your books with your straight stacks, had a roll of hundreds all ready to go. Better not bring that shit here, won't leave with it, I tell you that, the last of the four added, a small quiet boy with a closely shaved head and bored eyes. Whatever, Miguel managed before, staring ahead at the board. The others talked about him in Spanish again. He heard Gordo many a time, as well as Maricon and Puta. Miss Tresson surveyed the room and saw that the class had evolved into playtime and called their attention. She watched each group present, and Miguel was thankful that another kid from his group went up instead. Miguel tuned out the rest of the class. It was only the first period, and he just wanted to go home. He found his way to biology, an older white lady in a nun's habit waiting. She was Sister Martha, a kindly, if not a forgetful lady that seemed more comfortable talking about fire and brimstone than cellular mitosis. None of the kids from a religion, at least the ones that heard Miguel's folly, were in the class. It passed as most science classes passed for Miguel. Somebody talked for a long while, and Miguel did not pay attention. He mostly just read the textbook in front of him, circling sections they did not understand well and highlighting key terms like his mother taught him. The period ended with a whimper, and Miguel made his way to the courtyard for a break. He went to his locker, stayed hovering over it. He pretended to read one of his textbooks. He pretended that he didn't need anyone to say hi to him, to tell him it was all okay. He just hoped no one knew how lonely, therefore weak, he really was. Thank you. Thank you. So as he uh, gets up, I'll introduce him quasi again. So Bruce Bauman, award-winning author. <laughs> and again, if you were lucky enough to go to CalArts, I see a few CalArtians from my years there. Um, it was the high, one of the highlights of my education was to be taught by him. So this is truly a great honor to get to do this and be like, hey, this guy's here. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. Um, so you pay 50, 60, whatever, $1,000 to go to CalArts, and the best advice you get is tell the fucking story. <laughs> you should hear the other shit we heard. Yeah, I, I know it. Um, <laughs> Um, before I start, I just want to say a few words. Even though I've done a zillion readings of my life, I am an extraordinarily nervous person who prefers to be alone in his room. Um, so, I actually, that was a terrific reading. If most of you, if you haven't read the book, buy it, read it. I guarantee you will be enthralled. Um, one well, of the great thrills of being a teacher, and there are not that many, um, is when someone succeeds. <laughs> and Daniel, who is, I can now 
not just call a former student, but a fellow novelist. And that is one hell of an achievement. So... And, and I can tell you, I did see the book when it was really long. <laughs> and then he sent me the galley, and I said, okay, he nailed it. <laughs> and so, okay, um, I'm going to do a short reading um, from this book, which came out about a year and a half ago. And um, I'm going to read something I've never read before. And I don't know if it's going to make sense. I've done a lot of readings. I mean, one of the questions... Silverbot was mentioned before when I was on Bookworm. It's my favorite question and least favorite question. He said, how does it feel like to have written a book that can't possibly be summarized? <laughs> I said, great, except when I am talking to the marketing people who tell me they don't know how to sell the damn thing. And when I do readings, because I don't know how to you know, intro a reading. And tonight is especially difficult, but I wanted to read a political section from the book. Um, it's a lot about rock and roll. It's a lot about art. It's a lot about crazy people. But it's also about politics. And given the fact that we have a fucking psycho as president, <laughs> I'm sorry if you don't agree, uh, <laughs> I wanted to read um, a portion of the politics um, in this book. And what you need to know is there's a character named Alchemy Savant, who is the lead singer of a band called the Insatiables, which was the biggest band in the world in the 90s. And 20 years later, 20-something years later, he decides he's going to run for president on a left-wing independent party. And his half-brother, who he didn't know most of his life, has become his best friend and his advisor. And they're the two main characters in this. And there's a third. And her name is Louise Urban Volter. And she is running for president on a far right-wing party. And Alchemy and Louise are on an old-fashioned barnstorming tour, the kind that used to happen with William Buckley and Norman Mailer. And that's where this picks up. Um, Alchemy and Louise Urban Volter, who had jumped from right-wing media rabble-rouser to junior senator from Arizona, were in the middle of a 10-day barnstorming tour. Their next stop was at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and Moses decided to go and take and watch. Immediately, the audience's question showed a preponderant interest in all things alchemy, from his opinions on the other bands to his political positions. Volter, sensing alchemy taking over the evening, reverted to her go-to issue and jingoistic persona, unleashing an anti-Islamic fusillade. Alchemy, your fandom is a nice subject, but what about your plans to dismantle our nuclear arsenal? How do you propose to stem the Islamic tide, one that would ban your music, prohibit your lifestyle? We're idly witnessing the imminent peril threatening you and all the faithful. I demand we use all our power to save our America, our American way of life. The attacks on our institutions and governmental systems are not cyber terror. They are cyber war. Waged by Islamic techno-jihadists, suicide bombers without the suicide. I know how to win this war. Singing a nice song won't do it. Many in the audience applauded passionately. 
alchemy, measuring the temperature of the crowd, began to sing. Oneness, I don't sing very well, so I'm not singing. Oneness through many, in this land of plenty, the audience then joined in. We are the ones who are proud to share. Open your arms, if you dare. Alchemy then said, come on, Louise, join the rest of us. Don't be so stodgy. Alchemy teased, fully aware that Walter would not appreciate being called stodgy. She then joined them and everybody else in the audience in singing, let's have some fun. All hail e pluribus unum wampum. When the auditorium quieted, alchemy began again. Now don't we feel better? Seriously, Louise. I don't disagree that this is a major problem for now and the future. A song won't stop a real or cyber missile, but it can make us stop and think about what we do share so that missile isn't fired. Taking an eye for an eye of four eyes of theirs for one of ours isn't a solution. Better to change cyber swords into cyber plowshares. The night went on, and the, when it finally finished, Alchemy and Moses went back to the hotel room and were eating dinner. When Alchemy brought up a subject that totally caught Moses off guard, I got a feeler from the Independence for California people. They already have half a million signatures for the ballot initiative. They'll file when they reach a million. They're in search of a standard bearer with name recognition and clout. Moses, shaking his head, said, If that's the case, and that's the worst idea since the initiative to make California six states, IFC wants California, Washington, and Oregon to secede and get Vancouver to join in the union to form a loose association. I know what they want, said Alchemy. Then how can you? It's akin to the Articles of Confederation, which failed. It's nuts. Impossible. Really? Moses always marveled that in Alchemy's world, impossible did not exist. He also saw that instead of getting tired, Alchemy was getting juiced and ready to riff deep into the night. Okay, Mose, just get me some information on the IFC and who's giving them money. Sure, I'll do that, and I'll do some other research too. But Mose, follow my reasoning here. You're the one who told me America is fracturing. That their three West Coast states have more common interests and beliefs than their neighbors in Arizona, Nevada, and Idaho. You're the one who said that the three coastal states are among the best options for ringing up good numbers. That's 50, 60 million people. And they have an economy that would rank among the largest in the world. Didn't you say that somehow these rifts need to be repaired? or it could lead to permanent fractures. If I'm governor when it cracks, alchemy, I said maybe in 50 or 100 years, because all empires run their courses, not in five or 10 years, I believe you can begin the repair we need now. Mose, you don't understand. Revolutionary change starts in the head but it's the feet that make it happen. One can look back a thousand years easier than forward 50, be futurific, and march forward. 
Alchemy closed his eyes and seemed suddenly far away. Alchemy what? Where are you? Tell me what you're thinking. Okay. That shit with Louise and the Muslim makes me crazy too. But all this religious posturing has made the line separating church and state all but disappear. I'm going to make it reappear. Whether it's for governor or president, you know it's going to come up again and again. I want to get out in front of it. And spiritual, but not religious, is liberal bullshit. Moses was beyond wanting to argue with his brother. He wanted to go to bed, but alchemy was in his own. Mose, you're a progressive, politically. But a true progressive has to make leaps in every direction. You, can't, you still can't extinguish that niggling belief. I said belief, not doubt. I doubt, therefore I am. A slight deprecating smile crossed Moses' face. Alchemy stared at him. I doubt, but still act. Therefore, I am. We're 40, 50 years into the new world of the digital age. And with the right vision, we're on the cusp of a new political and social order. It took Christianity 200 and 50, 300 years to become the historical force that dominated the last 1,700 years. Within 75 years of Gutenberg's invention, Lutheran and the Protestant Reformation took hold and undid the monolithic power of Catholicism in a time frame that seemed to them unimaginably fast. The quantum revolution is not the future. It's the present. We're not in the industrial age anymore. It's the cyber age. And cyber plowshares can take us to a new era where religion and nationalism are as archaic as idol worship and a steam engine. A man or a woman working with a binary device. Not some papyrus or Gutenberg Bible. A believer in humankind's power and intelligence will lead us to the promised land or to extinction. Thank you. And our, we're going to talk. I'm going to ask him a couple of questions, um, which I've written down. Watch your water. Oh, that's right here. Okay. Um, uh, okay. Should be good, right? I can hear. Yes. No. All right. Okay. Um, I remember reading reading the first versions of the book and um, how you're approaching the various narrations and how to actually tell it and um and and when I reread it it was I, I was I was really happily I don't want to say surprised but I was happy to read how you'd managed to write really forceful distinct vo- in a voice where um Miguel, Miguel is sometimes um detached almost cold emotionless and other times, the voice is very powerful, emotional, as you heard, often funny. So I want to know how you worked through that to get the, the voices and how you made your choices when to have the language be 
more reserved and when to be punchier <laughs> since there were some punchy scenes uh yeah quite literally the yeah. main character gets his ass kicked a lot um uh but i guess when i was working with the language i was trying to balance of um being honest to the fact that the character is a millennial and has grown up as a millennial um so a lot of the idioms and speech patterns needed to reflect that um which wasn't too hard because that's kind of copying my you know my natural kind of speech patterns um but i think it also was important to capture that um he's a very well educated person um in a very formal and classical sense and so that has to be shown and i think really what i was trying to strive to do was to one to show the balance that especially his character but also a lot of people more so than we ever think are contradictions and are constantly moving back and forth between different codes and languages and even thought processes um and we often get labeled with you need to be this way right your thought process must be pure this way rather than we're you know depending on who and what you are you're constantly having to change those processes to to fit your environment so often with when i would think about it it would be would the main character or really any of the characters who are speaking in the narration around them would they be would they be having to watch what they're saying would they having to be perform in the linguistic sense around those around them um or could they be honest right could they actually express how they feel in their natural form without having to worry about how it's being received right in that sense of i think um especially at least for me and i think other people of color there's that sense of code switching that you have to speak a certain way when you're in a predominantly white environment which is different than speaking the way you would naturally speak or speak the way you would speak with your friends i mean um i think of actually what helped me with it was a great little short joke by Kean Peel of you know there's um one of the worst things to ever be is you know to be the only the only black guy in a room full of white people and the worst thing than that is to be the whitest black guy in a room full of black people <laughs> right and that's true with being latino right like there's there's nothing worse than being the whitest latino in a group of latinos um and you have to constantly code switch and you know i think that's um something that i tried to play with the language of and especially even in the narration cuz i really like third person close um is would this character have to code switch are they code code switching right now and that you need sometimes that really cold emotionless part of you to where i feel this way and i feel very passionately but it's very stupid and very bad for me if i express that so i need to switch to another mode that's yeah. kind of what i was going for did did you read some of it aloud to oh yeah yeah all the time yeah i mean that's one of the other things i actually recommend highly cuz you can he- you can hear it when i was reading it i could hear the the voices almost as if you, i mean because i knew you yeah. that that that's an influence but i i could hear the voices okay um the other question i had was you know th- th- there is as we just mentioned some pretty intense violence in the in 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 the book and the language sometimes reflects that and the rel- relationships sometimes reflect that but there are also some really incredibly tender moments in the book i think and and i i think that's one of that that ability to do both of that without going into being too sort of syrupy or to just violence for the sake of everybody suddenly punched out mm-hmm. um that mix of emotions works really well and i was just curious um how you went about that if there was an intentionality in that and um you know when you mix those two or chose those two how you worked it out 
Well, I guess, I mean, when I was started writing it, it was very much always meant to be like a coming-of-age story. Um, and the one thing, though, that I, you know, is universal in coming-of-age stories is love. But I think that we define love so poorly and so narrowly. And because the, the character is constantly having to learn, a, you grow up based on how you love. And you grow up, really growing up is learning to deal with love in complicated ways. So, like, learning to deal with familial love, right? And the main character's family isn't perfect. And depending who he was with, like, his extended family are from a rural environment, and so their definitions of punishment and discipline are very different and very traumatic sometimes. Um, but he still loves them, and they still love him, right? And it's part of growing up is navigating those kind of contradictions. Um, the relationship with his mother, which is, uh, and his father even, are complicated um, because that's what growing up is. It's learning to love comp in a complicated way. Um, and I also think, as odd as it is for me in my mind, that love and violence are very closely connected because we like to think that love and hate are these polar opposites, but they're really just what side of the fence you're on. That you know, some of the some of the characters, the best things they do are because they love someone, and some of the characters, the worst things they do are because they love someone, right? And that um, that kind of duality of being human—that it's you know, love and hate are much more closely tied than we like to believe. And a lot of the times, the violence we inflict upon each other, whether it's actually physical or emotional, is a twisted result of love in some ways either you know like think of the grandfather character in the book that you know very early on first chapter you know harshly punishes the main character um, to be polite about it but that was an act of love to him right this was I'm teaching you to be a man I'm teaching you not to whine not to complain to to be strong enough to face the world and if you're not strong enough to do that you deserve to be broken Right, and that's just the flat out, that's just, to him, that was love. While the, you know, uh, mother character kind of sending Miguel away was also an act of love, of that you are not healthy here, you can't survive in this environment, and you're going to kill someone or you're going to die, so you need to go away. Right, and so I think it's, those can be seen as violence at times, and sometimes it is easy to see physical violence, but the other time it's just, again, a matter of perspective, right? And it's most of the things we do, whether they're kind or unkind, are motivated by love, and growing up is really learning how to navigate that, because it's a freaking mess. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, we'll open it up to some questions from you guys, for either one of us. Yeah. I really like what you said. Um, oh, thank you. So in this... Mm -hmm. Political society. Um, mm -hmm. What if growing up is dealing with money? Oh, that's a big part of it. I mean, and this book is uh, a lot about um, the idea of class, right? That your class radically changes your perspective on life and how other people treat you and interact with you. Um, and I think that the is idea. Is really your relationship to money? Is it in some ways it can be, but I mean, it's one of those, um, your lack of it, right, can be, I think, um, a powerful change in how you deal with the world. Like if you grow up incredibly working class where you don't have a lot, Christmas is, you know, splitting, you know, 10 bucks among 10 kids, right, that you learn to navigate and interact with the world much differently than if, you know, you just get bought an Xbox because you can, right? So I think um, part, I mean, that's part of, even how we define love and unfortunately contemporary society is usually built around gifts and money and things like that, you know. The idea of getting a hand-carved toy or a piece of pipe 
as a tortilla, you know, roller um, for a wedding gift would be considered as, you know, an act of love because that's what you can afford while someone else might think, you know, I need my super sweet 16 and, uh, you know, I need to have a Rolls Royce drive me in and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to drop a hundred thou on me to be considered love growing up. I'd like that too. <laughs> I'd like us all to win personally. <laughs> More questions? Lane? I really enjoyed the reading. How much of the, of the book is not autobiographical? Uh, like it is fictional. 98%. So, like, the book is, I mean, I, I grew up in kind of in all of those environments, right? Like, I um, spent a lot of time with my extended family in Exeter, California, which is outside of Visalia. And if you have no idea where that is, it's between Bakersfield and Fresno. Right, um, so all orange groves, um, and that's where my dad's family's from. And I spent a lot of time there with my grandmother and my grandfather, and a whole host of cousins and aunts and uncles. Um, and I spent time and grew up uh, in Arizona. I grew up in the 909, which again is out east. Um, and then I have been in LA and in the LA area since I was 16. Um, although I went to school down in Irvine briefly for four years for undergrad. Um, so I lived in all these places, but like what's happened and the characters are just completely fictional. I, I would often think of things like stories I'd heard secondhand and be like, oh, that's kind of interesting. How could I make that way better? Right? Or even things that happened to me. Right? Or like, oh, yeah, no, because the, the, the scene I read was, that was pretty closer to autobiographical. I remember that experience. Don't ever admit that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm still new at this. Right? Um, but... A lot of it was, but a lot of even that scene was very exaggerated. Um, there was a lot of things I was like, it would be cool if this happened, or this would be interesting if I did this to this character, right? Um, which is really how it was built. Because I never sat down and like, oh, I'm gonna like write like my life because it's not that interesting. Um, it was more of, let's see what happens when I take a character who I can kind of relate to in the sense of we grew up in somewhat similar environments, and then just turn shit up to eleven, right? Like, just I'm glad this never happened to me. But what if it? What if it happened to somebody? What would that do to them? Right? How would that impact their development? Yeah. yeah. Bruce, I've seen you read a few times before, and uh, you've talked at a couple of those about the significance of the names in the book. So the one you just read was Urban Bolter. Yeah. Yes. Um, I a lot of the names like. Ambitious Minds Follow and stuff. Others, Absurd Nightingale came out of my imagination. This was very well thought out. Um, Pope Urban launched the Crusades, the first crusade. And so I wanted to use that. And he launched it with the phrase Deus Vault, which means go with God. And in her speech that are her talking in there. I actually pulled some quotes, other quotes out from Pope Urban's launching the Crusades. And her initials are also L-U-V. And she's about the least loving motherfucker you'll ever meet. <laughs> so that's my idea of irony. But yeah, I mean, that, there are a lot of names that are anagrams and thought out. And that one was very... took me a while to get that one right. But others are just funny, I hope. <laughs> But I want to say, what Daniel did, of course he drew on his personal life. 
a novel won't succeed if that's what you do and the characters don't have a life of their own. And I don't know, I know somewhat about his personal life and stuff, but I know that these characters became full-blown fictional characters with complete lives of their own. And some of you know him well and you'll make associations. I would ask you to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Having gone through that for a long time with my own family. If I wanted to write you in, trust me, you'd know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else? Me or Bruce? Anybody? I'm so shy. Hey, Mark. Uh, So, was there a specific kind of catalyst or motivation behind telling this story? Um... I think it was, I was at UC Irvine, actually. That's when the very first kind of start was. Um, and I was getting ready to apply for grad school. And like, oh, okay, what do I do? I want to be a writer, I guess. Um, where, should, where can I go? Um, and I had this, I was taking a Chicano Studies class. And uh, the conversation was always around, you know, growing up in the barrio and like, you know, kind of dealing with, you know, these, you know, great systems of uh, economic injustice. And, you know, the professor would kind of share and students would be invited to share. And when it came to me, um, they're like, so, you know, what was it really like growing up? You know, like, you know, you're from L.A. So what was it? Were, you know, Boyle Heights, East L.A.? And I was like, um, Miracle Mile? Like, you know, like, you know, like, again, if, uh, Park La Brea, if you know that place, like, I grew up there when I was in high school. Um, and so it just, it, it was the moment where the professor was like, oh, okay. And like, but all the students were looking at me, and again, class was majority Latino, and they're just looking at me and they're like, you, and again, one of them even said it, like, oh, I didn't realize you were a coconut. And, I, and I'd heard that so much growing up. Um, and, you know, part of that is, also being really geeky, like I'm like super into very geeky stuff, um, and I to- totally wear that flag, right? Like, um, but my friends were mostly people of color um, who are also geeky, but we all got called. So one of my friends was constantly called an Oreo because you know we like playing Magic the Gathering, but he was you know black on the outside, white on the inside. One of my friends who's Asian was a banana, right? And we all had these little fruit or food names for ourselves um, that people called us, and so I had the moment of like, man, like. Why does it have to be that way? Why is that the narrative? You go to the average Chicano Studies class, it's like always running. It's, you know, books that are powerful and I, I, I think people should read, but they also really, they don't speak about the other narrative that there are many people of color who grow up outside of that environment and often don't feel like they get to be part of that. They don't get to, they're not authentic, right? And there's always that pursuit of the authentic experience and it's like, oh, you didn't grow up poor? You can't be authentically this. And that, for me, always kind of pissed me off. Um, so I was like, you know, screw that, I'm going to write my own book, right? It was just that one, like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing. And, like, you know, 11, 12 years later, like, hey, you know, slow but steady. No, that's not slow. That, <laughs> Ten years after, that's normal. That's good. Oh, that's thank good. God. <laughs> I mean, anyway, writing a, writing a novel is not a 100-yard uh, dash. It's a marathon. Um, any other questions? If not, I'll ask. I got one. Nobody? Oh, okay. Go ahead. So could you guys talk about how you do tackle ideas? Are you disciplined? How do you approach the beginning of a project? What are your, like, obstacles? Just riff on how you get this, the job done. You want to do that first? You. Okay. <laughs> um, I need time to think. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I believe discipline is the most... It, after being able to take an immense amount of rejection, which every writer takes, I don't care who the fuck they are, just some famous writers lie about it. (laughs) I know that they've been rejected. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.